0: Yes, he does. And that is good news. As you take your copy of God's Word and and find your way, we're going to do our reading this morning actually from Matthew chapter 5. It's been a joy this summer to do our typical mini-series through the book of Psalms. As we've worked our way through the summer, we looked at Psalm 135, praise for our sovereign Lord, Psalm 96, worship the King among the nations. In Psalm 150, we were commanded and compelled to praise by one Ben Daly. That uh, was fun. Uh, and in Psalm 61, uh, last week at, the, at Church in the Park, can you? Or excuse me, not Church in the Park, Church Behind the Church, and uh, I am glad that last week's weather was last week's weather and not this week's weather. Amen? As Ben took us through Psalm 61, the rock that is higher than I. And this week when we come to our psalm, we're going to change gears a little bit because this psalm comes from a bit of a different direction. But I think to prepare our hearts for it, we would do well to look at the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. So if you found your way there, I'd invite you to stand, as is our custom, to honor the reading of God's word. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is obviously the famous Sermon on the Mount from Christ. And he said this, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying... Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Would you pray with me? Father, you've told us through your son that life in your kingdom is not like that in this world, that we are not to respond to this life as those who can only see the horizon of our circumstances, but we are to respond as those who are able to gaze up into the heavenly places and see Christ seated there at your right hand. And so I pray you would help us to do that in response to your word this morning. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There's a, a couple of reasons I'm drawn to the song we'll be looking at this morning, Psalm 37, and one is because it contains one of my favorite verses in the Bible for how to pursue God's will, and so we will get to that. But what brought it to mind first was something rather unexpected. Many of you have probably heard of or listened to a viral song that came out of nowhere called Rich Men North of Richmond. Uh, the song was a heartfelt protest song, pointedly and with some colorful language in case you want to pop it on in the car on the way home, uh, pointedly bemoaning what was felt to be the almost hopeless state of so many in our country today. It painted a vivid and a stark picture of wicked people in positions of wealth and power, oppressing and controlling the lives of those caught under their influence. In a way unprecedented in American music, it hit a chord with millions almost overnight, Uh, the artist who goes by the name Oliver Anthony, he became the first artist in history to debut as number one on the Billboard Hot 100 without having ever appeared on the Billboard in any other position before. And he did so with his first professionally recorded song of his entire musical career. And calling it professionally recorded is a bit of a stretch, since the the song was just recorded in its property with lots of background noise, and if you listen carefully, the mic keeps clipping. So it wasn't the beauty of the art, in other words, that had people talking and listening by the tens of millions across the country. It was the sentiment that many of us have fallen on hard times, and that the cause of that hardship is people who seem to be in places of unassailable power and influence. Well, a few days later, after that song went viral, the artist was performing in front of a small group of people, and in that performance, he read a portion of the song that we're going to look at this morning. And so if rich men north of Richmond is a cry from the heart of a nation contemplating difficult days ahead, then Psalm 37 is an even more powerful song coming to us from the high king of heaven, full of encouragement and power. It's not a short psalm. And so there is no way that we can tour every room and passageway in it this morning. Our goal is simply to wander through, noting some of the highlights that are here, and creating a simple framework for God's divine design for dealing with difficult days. And my hope is that we'll walk away this morning with a powerful bottle of soul-strengthener in our heart. They can help us face difficult days as they come, whether that's difficult days for us individually, the trials that we face individually, or whether that may be difficult days faced even at a national scale. And so turn with me to Psalm 37. And as you're doing so, you'll find there right in the superscript at the beginning that this is a Psalm of David. And we also know from verse 25 that this isn't a psalm David wrote as a kid while he was out shepherding the sheep of his father. This isn't a song that David wrote during his flight from Saul or even as a young king over Jerusalem. This psalm is written by an old David. And it comes to us from the pen, then, of an old and weary warrior, somebody who has known both victory and defeat. He has experienced the blessings of God, but he's also faced bitter discipline. For his terrible sin of taking another man's wife and then murdering him through betrayal and deception. He has watched old enemies grow stronger and emboldened. And he has faced insurrection and the threat of death from his own son, Absalom. In other words, this song is not written by a young idealist. This song is written by a seasoned God follower who is covered in literal and figurative scars from a life of politics, war, and family dysfunction. And that makes his first three words particularly interesting and powerful to me. And so we will look this morning first at verses 1 through 9. And if you want to know God's divine design for dealing with difficult days, if you're taking notes, the first point is simply this. Abandon your anxiety. Abandon your anxiety. And okay, just a couple more observations on how this psalm was put together before we get to those first three words. Because we all want to be Hebrew poetry nerds, right? First, this psalm makes liberal use of the tool of chiasm to help get the main points across. And we've seen this before, right? It's a literary technique that creates a meaning sandwich. If you, if you cut a, a chiastic steak sandwich in half, this is what you'd see, right? Bread top and bottom. That's important, but it's not the start of the show. Then you've got whatever your secret spread sauce On both pieces of bread top and bottom also important not the start of the show then you move in and you've got lettuce top and bottom tomato top and bottom why would you have lettuce and tomato top and bottom because this is a chiasm sandwich and it has to be symmetrical and then right at the very middle what would you have at the middle of your chiasm steak sandwich the steak the steak and now you've found the star of the show. Now you've found what everything is pointing to. And our psalm does that, but with words and not sandwiches. And so we'll highlight some of that as we get to it. And the second thing I want to keep in mind is this psalm has a cool trick up its sleeve that it would have been really helpful for young Jewish boys and girls when they were learning how to memorize and sing this psalm. And that is that each stanza of about four lines each begins with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet in order. So verse 1 begins with their A, and the second stanza that begins in verse 3 began with their letter B, and so on through all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, which is cool. So now that we're all Hebrew poetry nerds, in verses 1 through 9, we see the first five letters of their alphabet, and the first chiasm of the psalm, and 15 commands about how to think and act when we find ourselves in difficult days. So follow along with me. We'll read these verses, beginning in verse 1. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evildoing, for evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will will inherit the land. This section is like the Old Testament version of Philippians 4, where we are commanded to be anxious for nothing. The most frequent command in this entire psalm is the one we find three times in these eight verses. Do not fret. When confronted with difficult days, our reaction is often pretty predictable, isn't it? It's what our youth would call freaking out. And notice how David throws up a wall in front of our anxiety in these verses. In our chiasm sandwich here, uh, we can begin by pairing verses 1 and 2 and verses 8 and 9. That's the uh, that's the bread bun. And it's the don't freak out part of the sandwich. It is such a direct but refreshing reminder when we hear news that is distressing or watch the storm clouds on the horizon and feel that burning sense of anger and worry and exasperation start to well up within us. Don't do it, is the exhortation. Don't feel angry. Don't burn within yourself. When would we be tempted to do so? Well, this psalm tells us when we encounter evildoers. And that's the expectation of this psalm, is that you will encounter evildoers. And not just people who are making you know, well-meaning mistakes. Errors in their thinking. But evildoers, people who are evil and who are trying to work evil. And it's getting hard to keep up with all the evildoing around us, isn't it? Seems like conspiracy theories are multiplying. And they're running across the airwaves like, like so many rabbits. Here's something that isn't a conspiracy theory. There are evildoers in this world. And some of them are in positions of tremendous power and influence. And we're going to have to deal with that reality. That's just a fact. Life in a fallen world means dealing with evildoers in places of power. And that can be very frustrating. That can be very provoking. That can lead us to do a good bit of fretting. But don't do it, David says. Why? Well, first of all, in verse 8, David says, Because anger and wrath... And fretting, and he uses all those words, because David's throwing the entire Hebrew thesaurus at us on this topic, so we don't try to find a loophole. I'm not fretting, I'm provoked. Don't do any of that stuff, he says, because anger and wrath and fretting, they're like stubborn mules that will only carry you to one place. They will take you home every time to their little sinful stables, no matter where you're trying to go. As James told us in James 1.20, the anger of man cannot accomplish the righteousness of God. So before we start putting sriracha sauce on our keyboards and studying dragon fire to use at the next town hall meeting, or just raging and gasping at our social media feeds, we need to stop and remember and heed David's counsel. Do not fret. Nothing good can come from it. And he says, don't fall into the equally deadly trap of feeling like you are stuck in bondage because you have to follow all the good people rules while the wicked get to have all the fun and cheat and they get to prosper as a result. Why do they get to have all the fun? And it's such an easy move, right? If we're not just feeling angry about a situation, to begin to feel envious. If it's so wrong, why does it seem to work so well? Cheaters never prosper, we keep teaching our children. And then our children grow up and they look around and they go, yeah, they do. Sometimes they prosper wildly. And and they don't have to just be wicked like in a respectful way, but they're like wicked in a mocking tone on some tropical beach with, with their private jet framed, you know, not too braggadociously in the background. So why would we not envy The wicked. Well, David says it's for the same reason we don't envy a rose in a vase. It's beautiful. It's vibrant. It's the center of attention. And it's dead. It just doesn't know it yet. The wicked, we are told, will wither like the grass. Not like the grass in western Washington that you can try to wither, but you won't succeed because it's just too wet. But like the grass in the Middle East, where after the rainfall, it jumps out of the ground almost, in some cases, literally overnight, and then with the heat of the sun, disappears within a week. We're told in verse 9 even more bluntly, the wicked will, at some point they can't predict, simply be cut off. And that's the first of five times in the psalm we're reminded that the wicked will be cut off. So don't envy those who will be destroyed tomorrow, no matter how impressive they look today. And do not fret or rage against the wicked, lest we become the wicked. So what are we to do instead? Well, that's the next level on our little mini chiasm sandwich here. Pairing up verses 3 and 4 and verse 7, the next level in, we learn what the right approach is. And you could sum it up this way, living a life of faith in God. It starts with a heart, David says, that has made two commitments. And that first commitment is that it will trust Him. And as a result, it will rest in Him. If you want to know what the Bible's definition of good mental health is, that's it. This is what the Bible says is mental health. A mind at rest because it trusts in God. And from this place of rest, in the middle of dealing with powerful evildoers... Let's not forget, a life of faithful living flows. Do you see that? We do what is good, David says. We don't withdraw from the world, but we dwell in the land and we cultivate faithfulness in all areas of life. We have a special sort of patience, David says, that is willing to wait for God to work in his way and in his timing. We're not content to simply sit idly by and do nothing, but we are content to labor diligently doing whatever good thing God has given us to do as long as God would have us to do it. And our success in this depends, do you see it there in verse 4 and the end of verse 7, on refusing to let our hearts respond emotionally to the wicked schemes of man that like treacherous nets are being pulled around us. Instead, and this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, we choose to delight ourselves in Yahweh and watch as he gives us the desires of our heart. And that word for delight here could also be translated as pamper or refresh. It's it's the word you would see on all of the ancient Near Eastern spas. Come in and be delighted, be pampered, be refreshed. It's a heart that turns from crushing circumstances to the oasis of the soul found in the presence of a God who is almighty and who cares for each of his children individually and deeply. So do you feel At a loss, at a crossroads in your life, does every option before you seem too scary or too dangerous or just too pointless to consider? Spend time, David says, being refreshed in the presence of a loving God, in his word, in prayer, in the fellowship of his people. And don't be surprised as you do, not to find that God has given you the Lamborghini and solved all your circumstances, but don't be surprised to find as you do that you begin to wake up each morning with different desires that God has put in your heart. That God will renew the longings of your heart. And instead of a longing of your heart saying, Lord, I'm fretting, everything's going crazy, you will discover I'm refreshed. And I am ready to do what he has asked me to do. It is a desire now in my heart. And that brings us to the center of our little chiasm in verse 5. The main point of David's charge in these opening verses if we will commit our way to the Lord and trust in him, then God will take care of things. And that word commit there literally means to roll something. And David's like, if you'll just roll your life right there to God, he'll honor that. Or as he says, he will do it. It reminds me of Paul writing to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5.24. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. What is the it? In this context, it's our righteousness and our discernment that will not be brought to mockery, but will be established like the shadowless light of the noonday sun. And this may not always happen in our lifetime here in this life, though it often does. And I, you've probably noticed that. God has a way. It may take a while, but he has a way of letting the truth out. It will, however, whether in this life or the next, surely take place. This is the divine pattern for dealing with difficult days. Don't envy, but wait patiently. Don't fret, but trust. Don't sit and do nothing, but cultivate faithful obedience. And don't worry how it's all going to turn out. Roll with God, and he'll take care of how the story ends. And that's really the heart of this message. Let God be God. He's really very good at it. And just to prove the point, David launches into the next 16 verses to teach us what God's perfect timing looks like and why we can confidently wait for him. And so in verses 10 through 26, we learn to trust God's timing. We must abandon the anxiety that our hearts are so prone to, the anger, the burning, and instead trust God. God knows what he's doing, and this is all part of his plan. We're going to walk through this section rather nimbly. The point is pretty straightforward. A couple things to keep in mind. First of all, for the rest of this psalm, we are going to be walking through another chiasm. We're not going to break it down quite as detailed, but if you start to notice towards the end, that sounds familiar. There's a reason for that. We'll be working our way back through the second half of the sandwich. Also, secondly, this psalm contains a lot of proverbial wisdom sayings. And what that means is that this describes, like the book of Proverbs itself, how God has designed the world to work normally. There may be exceptions to some of these things, but the exceptions don't disprove the rule. This is the normal expectation of how God designed his world to work. So with that in mind, here we go. Verse 10. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land, and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. If you want to know a principle of the universe more certain than gravity itself, it is this. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you see a proud man, no matter how successful, you are watching somebody approaching a brick wall at high speed. Every time, always, God will humble the proud. And if you see a humble person, know however small and seemingly insignificant their current place in life is, they are on their way to exaltation. That is how God works and how he always Will. And David reminds us of that. He goes on in verse 12. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. And this is another excellent lesson for us. If it seems like the world is particularly angry with those who believe God's word and try to live it out consistently, then you're correct. It is. The world has a particular place in its heart for mocking the people of God. And throughout history, up to the present day, much of the persecution of the church and of God's people has just plain seemed irrational. Like, why? What is, what is the goal of this? It's an expression of rage by a world that often gnashes at the righteous with its teeth. And have you noticed that? How almost irrationally angry our culture becomes when you start reading God's word. But look how God responds. He laughs. We see that as well in Psalm 2. Yes, God will one day terrify his enemies in his fury, as Psalm 2 goes on to say. But God's initial response to the anger, to the raging, to the oppression even of this world is... Laughter. Do you realize that in most situations, the Babylon Bee is closer to a godlike response to society than some red-faced discernment blogger? You ever shake your head and chuckle at the proud antics of a would-be tyrant toddler who thinks he's about to rule the world? And you're like, it's not going to turn out well. God does that to us all the time. What do you think you're doing, little man? Who do you think you are, little woman? We need to learn to laugh more at the audacity of the wicked because we, like God, know what day is coming. A day of judgment when the proud will be humbled, when the humble will be exalted, and when the righteous will be vindicated Look at verse 14. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. God loves poetic irony. He's sort of like the the jujitsu master. Where he loves to let the wicked build up enough momentum to destroy themselves. And I think if we have eyes to see and we look around us, we'll watch God doing this all the time, using the very wicked momentum of the, of the evildoer to bring about their own destruction. And so we are told, don't fear when you see this big fortress of wickedness bristling with weaponry. Because God has a way of turning that around where, well, ask Haman. If God likes poetic irony. Verse 16. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken. But the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil. And in the days of famine they will have abundance. A small investment that is guaranteed to accrue a vast fortune is far better, don't you think, than a vast fortune that is guaranteed to be wiped out. And that's what David is saying here. You may have little today, but the inheritance situation for the children of God is out of this world, isn't it? And we have that hope that what God has in store for us is protected and secured. And so when we see the vast resources of the wicked, we are looking at something that is soon to be gone. And when we see even the tiny mounts that the righteous have, that is something that shall soon be compounded beyond belief. Because that's the kind of God we serve. Verse 20, the wicked will perish and the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. And this is the center of the sandwich for not only the whole rest of the psalm, but really for the whole psalm as an entirety. We live without fear because the wicked, no matter how scary they seem, are only ever a temporary problem. The prince of darkness grim... We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. And it always will be. When God goes to war, and he will, from a distance you will notice what appears to be a black dust cloud before his white war horse. But it's not dust. It is his enemies vanishing like smoke before him. And if we believe that, We should live differently. And that's what David then goes on to describe here in verse 21. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. For those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. The wicked love the blessings of today. They love the things of this life. They fight to cling to as much of it as they can. In the long run, we're all dead, famously spoke the chief economic architect of our times. Borrow what you can today. Avoid paying it off at all costs. Get, get, get before you die. But the righteous live with a different set of values, don't they? To the righteous, the riches of this world are not salvation. They are tools to employ with generosity. We give because we do not fear scarcity when we have so great a God as ours. Look at verse 23. The steps of a man are established by the Lord and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. And this is a beautiful reversal of what we saw earlier in verse four. When we entrust our steps to God by delighting in him, he gives us the desires of our heart. But here we see God's delight in our steps as we follow him righteously. And that's a different word for delight than we saw in verse 4. Verse 4 was that pampered, refreshing, oasis word. And it's not like God's like, I'm having a hard day. I'm just going to go see if any of my children are obeying. I think sometimes as parents we do that, like, oh, it's been a hard day. Children, do something cute. That's not what God's saying here. No, this is a word that means God feels great joy. God feels great joy. When he sees his children walking righteously. And notice, when we walk this righteous path before our Father, seeking his pleasure, we do not walk it alone, but we walk it with one who, as verse 24 says, holds our hand. And like a small child holding the hand of a father, should we trip on some unseen obstacle, we will not fall headlong. We will be borne up in the strong arms of he who delights in us. As an old man, David had watched this very thing play out over and over and over around us. And so he ends this section with a short personal observation. Look at verse 25. I have been young and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing This verse doesn't mean that there will never be such a thing as a hungry Christian. What it does say is that in David's long life, he had seen this pattern hold invariably true. God provided for the righteous. The righteous had been gracious with God's provision, and that this produced a generational pattern of discipleship that was a blessing to the land. Oh, may that be the way of God's children here at Valley Bible Church to however many generations are yet to come. Amen? People who rely on the good provision of God, who use that provision with open hands to be a generous blessing to others and who teach their children to do the same generation after generation. And so we close with a charge to live for that long-term horizon Verses 27 through 40, live for the long term. Verse 27 says this: depart from evil and do good. We've got a couple commands showing up again. So you will abide forever. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off, and the righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Again, the theme of God's preservation of the righteous is repeated, and again, the theme of the wicked being cut off is repeated. But notice how we just went from talking about in this life, in most of the rest of the psalm, to the edges of eternity, as David now three times tells us, the righteous will dwell securely forever. He's taking us to the distant horizon. Verse 30 The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart, his steps do not slip. And this is what someone looks like who trusts God with today, with tomorrow, and with every day unto forever. Their words are wise, not just parroting the wisdom of the day or what's hot in the news. Their words are just and free from manipulation and dishonesty. And their heart is brimming with the law of God. And they show their love for God by keeping it. And their steps do not slip. They have cultivated faithfulness. And if you come back to see them after being gone on a long journey, you will find them still plowing a straight line in God's field. And that's not because the threat of the wicked isn't real, but because it doesn't matter when taken together with the power of God to save and to preserve. Look at verse 32. The wicked spies upon the righteous. They do, usually through our phones, it seems like, and seeks to kill him. David knew what that was like literally to have surrounding nations conspiring on a regular basis for how do we kill that guy? David says, the Lord will not leave him in his hand or let him be condemned when he is judged. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. I have seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Then he passed away, and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Stay the course. The Lord is near to us. The hour of our vindication draws near you can get this from isaiah to revelation the message is crystal clear when the wicked are cut off and the truth of god's word is proven to everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth you will see it you'll be there you're not going to be in the heavenly antechamber waiting for all of the the mess to be over you're going to be there And so many who are vaunted as demigods by the culture today will simply be another vanquished foe for our unstoppable God on that day. They will have no power, they will have no glory, they will have no fame, they will receive no special treatment. But the humblest child of God will be crowned with glory and honor and given a place among the saints in light forever. So we need to change who we pay attention to. We need to change who we think is a big deal. And let us learn to pay more attention to those who will stand forever in glory than those who will vanish away like smoke. Which is why in verse 37, David says, Mark the blameless man and behold the upright. For the man of peace will have a posterity. But transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. As the music team comes up to lead us in our closing song this morning, do you know someone who walked with integrity? Do you know someone who's a peacemaker? Watch that person. That is the person who will have an impact, David says, in his day and across generations to his posterity. It is the mark of someone who has entrusted himself to a great Savior and the Lord will prove himself up to the task. This psalm is not calling upon us to bring about a utopia through our faithful hard work. Heavens, no. What we have here is a call to trust God so much that we are able to wait patiently and live faithfully until he brings his salvation to completion. We serve a God so big, it should drive all our fretting and anxiety away. We serve a God so wise that his timing can be trusted implicitly. And we serve a God so gracious that his salvation can encourage us for the long term across the years and by God's grace across the generations until he returns. Amen? Amen. Let's close in song.